This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number six of this twofoldedness of prophecy. It is our custom in this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read with us Romans, the 11th chapter? I ought to have said that this is number six of this series, the two-sidedness of prophecy, two lines of teaching running through it, the one over against the other, the two seeds, the two cities, the two dynasties, and many other features that we shall not be able to include in this series that you will discover help to balance and teach the two great conflicting ways, darkness over against light, good over against evil, and so on. <clears throat> now this evening, we're looking at the word fullness as the key to our study. <clears throat> it might be useful, in case those of you who are listening have not already been acquainted with this, that the word fullness does not necessarily mean that there's an emptiness, but rather a rent, Rather, something that has been distorted. Although, of course, the very making it right again is the uh, uh, work of a fullness. And to demonstrate that, I'll turn you to the way in which our Saviour used this word fullness in the parable that we gave in Matthew, the ninth chapter and the 16th verse. Most of you may know this, but I want to be sure that those who are listening are aware of this First use of the word pleroma, fullness, in the New Testament. 9, 16. No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up, taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. So there is the way in which our Saviour, who himself was the fullness, and in him all fullness dwells, the only guarantee in the scriptures that the fullness will ever be attained, he says that the very fullness of God is here because there has been a rupture, there has been a rent. And we go back to Genesis 1 and we see there was darkness upon the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. Let there be light. He brought this earth up from the depths again. Let the dry land appear. He put a man upon it. And to that man he said, and to his wife who was with him, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There's the word that gives us the word fullness again. Replenish. Now some have said it doesn't mean that when God spoke to Adam. Well, he said the same words all over again to Noah after the flood. He said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, as nobody can doubt that if those words were said to Noah, there had been a devastation just before. There had been a flood. There had been a terrible destruction. Well, just before Adam there had been a flood, and so evidently a terrible depletion. So now we've got the thought that even though it goes beyond the mere numerical value, don't leave that out. I'll come to that again presently with regard to the question of sheer number. Another feature that I think would do us good if we were to remember 
I think we'd better turn to this passage, Isaiah the sixth chapter, just because a little variation in the translation. Isaiah the sixth chapter. I'll read the first few verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Notice that the train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. So it's a very holy thing that we are considering. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, that could stand as true, but that isn't what the actual words read. It's the other way round. The glory of the whole earth is his fullness. You see the point? You might say, why should we do everything to the glory of God? Well, if you do your best interests, friends, you would. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things you're falling over one another that get shall be added unto you, he said. But you see, we think if we only look after number one, everything will work out all right in the end. And that's just the evil principle that starts from the Garden of Eden and is still with us. So, remember the revised translation of Isaiah 6. These holy ones who saw the different eyes from that you and I have, they said, the glory of the Lord is the fullness of the whole earth. When once God is in his right place, when once Christ is in his right place, all the rest must follow as the night the day. Well, now we come a stage nearer. We shall find that this word fullness is used of the people of Israel particularly. Because we're going to see, in, as we read just now in Romans 11, there is a fullness concerning Israel, and there's a fullness concerning the Gentiles. But I want to lead up to that step by step. So I'll take you back, if you will, to the book of Genesis, three references there, where we have this emphasis upon the word fullness. Something that fills. The first passage is chapter 28, verse 3. Twenty-eight, verse three. And God Almighty bless thee. God Almighty bless thee. You see who is being blessed? It's Jacob. And Jacob, under the direction of his mother, schemed and plotted and deceived in order to get the blessing of Abraham. He's an illustration of a person wanting the right thing and going the wrong way about it. Fancy deceiving your poor old father who was blind in order to get the blessing of Abraham. So he failed. He got a blessing. But if you read the words that Isaac gave him, poor old Jacob had very little of those that he gave him. And he made an enemy of his brother because he cheated him. And as a consequence, Rebecca, his mother, who, whose favourite son Jacob was, she had to suggest to him that he clears out and she never saw him again in this life. So here, the very words that he was longing to hear, 
when Isaac put his hands upon him and blessed him and never got, he gets free without asking for it when he's being sent away. The Lord and God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and, the, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. Now will you notice that being fruitful and multiply, you notice the words, don't you, are carried over from, from Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 28, be fruitful and multiply. It means what it says because it adds to it that thou mayest be a multitude of people, a called out people, an emphasis upon the fact that this is a congregation, as the word indicates, in, envisaged by God. Or let's take it a stage further. In verse 14, Jacob is on his way now to Laban, and you remember that Laban is always called by one title in the scripture, his mother's brother. And he was another artful one, just the same as Rebecca was. And Jacob met his match when he met his uncle. All these things have a habit of coming back on your own head sometimes. And he learned lessons in a hard school. But in verse 14, he has been seeing that ladder leading up to heaven. He's, a, he's not quite sure of himself now. And if God should speak to him, he might reprimand him severely, mightn't he? And when God does speak to him, it says, And I seed, oh, I'll read verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it, that ladder, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Israel, the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou hast to thee, will I give it unto thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. Now, I've met some people that they, you know, it, I'll give you passages in a moment. There's the dust of the earth, and there's the sand of the sea, and there's the stars of heaven. So they say there's a dust seed there on the earth, and there's a star seed there in heaven, and they quietly don't know what to do with the sand seed, so they leave that out. Well, I have this principle. If I have to leave anything out of the Bible, it's a warning light to me, you're wrong somewhere. So that there's no idea of a dust seed being to do with that character. The one essential feature about dust, or sand, or stars, it will beat you to reckon up the number. And you can take your choice which figure you use. If you think of the dust of the earth, if you think of the sand of the sea, if you think of the stars in number innumerable, that's all it means. So we'll notice again here that it says, And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and to the south, and in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we'll go to 48, chapter 48, verse 4, and we get another almost repetition. 48, verse 4. It says in verse 3, And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. 
and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make thee of thee a multitude of people, and I will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. So you see, it's being emphasized. Well, now let's come back again and look at these three references to the dust, the stars, and the sand. We'll look at chapter 13, I think we'll get it, of Genesis. Chapter 13, verse 15. Oh, this is uh, an important section. God had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, unto a land that I will show thee. Well, Abraham left home, but God hadn't showed him the land. And you might have said, well, God didn't keep his promise. Well, Abraham didn't keep the conditions. God said, leave thy kindred. And Lot was with him. Terah took him. I dare say Abraham had a terrible job to put it into practice to get rid of Terah, his father, and Lot, his nephew. But there they were. The same thing happened when they came out of the land of Egypt under the very Passover land. A mixed multitude went with them. And you remember our Saviour said that the sower sowed good seed in his land and at night his enemy came and sowed tares. So they both grew together. So we'll never get a perfect state in this world. Not even in the chapter of the open book, friend. Let alone you friends who are living in the ends of the earth. So here we have in chapter 13, verse 15, these words. Oh, verse 14, I was going to say that, wasn't I? And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, notice that bit, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that thou seest, thee will I give it to thy seed forever, and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be also be multiplied. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then if you like to get the other passages, as we chapter 15, verse 5, Abraham is speaking, God is speaking, and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if they'll be able to number them. He said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That was, of course, the coming, the promise concerning Isaac. And then, in chapter 32, verse 12, we have the sand. But keep that page, uh, chapter 15, I'm coming back to that in a moment. Chapter 32, Verse 12. Jacob is here. He's praying. He says in verse, the verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou showed unto thy servant. And I have a feeling that nearly everyone who's heard me read those words can say, and you can put my name there. Shall we say them again? I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth 
which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he's still thinking that if his wives are destroyed and he has no family, then that part of the purpose will not be fulfilled. And you see there, when he quotes what was said to him at Bethel, he says, sand. So I just say to you, I'm not emphasising this, don't be led away by just superficials. Make sure that they are based quite squarely upon what God has actually said and why. Well now, we're going back to chapter 15, weren't we? I wanted just to draw this attention. Abraham is concerned. He's been saying to God, I've got no seed, I've got no children, and I've got all this promise of being like the sand of the sea and the dust of the earth and so on. And God then makes a covenant with him and said in verse 13, Abraham, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterwards shall they come out with great substance and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Well you say, what a strange thing for God to say to a man who had obeyed him and he told him he was going to have a seed that couldn't be numbered and they were going to inherit that land, and now he tells him that that seed is going down to be afflicted by some other nation, and you, Abraham, are going to be buried in the good old age. You say, well, what's happened? Well, now another principle is coming in. Watch the last verse, which I haven't read. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There's another fullness. Now it's beyond my ability to tell you what principle God works upon. But I can sense in the scripture that he gives even a fool or a wicked person a certain length of rope. You know, we say you give a person enough rope and he'll hang himself. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it says he takes the wise in their own craftiness. So here's one. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And so, because the Amorites hadn't reached their fullness of iniquity, Israel had got to suffer in Egypt. Well, it's all over again, friends. Because some other part of God's purpose has been held up or distorted by the evil one, children of God have to mark time and suffer. You'll find that it's, it's obtaining in many ways. Well, now, you'll find, if we will turn to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, there's another reference to this idea that there's some sort of measure or some sort of length or some sort of uh, rope that might be given. Chapter 23 of Matthew. Chapter 23. And um, verse 32. This is a, a word which our Saviour is speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees. And he calls them a generation of vipers 
But in verse 32 he says, Feed ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? So here was a part of Israel. As he, as he told them later on in John the 8th chapter, you are of your father the devil. Now Christ would never have used words out of their turn. He's not like you or me sometimes blurt a thing out because we're upset over something. He spoke solemnly. You are the generation of vipers. You are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you do. And here he says, feed ye up then the measure of your fathers. So Israel, their fathers, had a measure. And we are told that God, with great patience, waited all the days of their departure of the night on a tree until there was no remedy. And then the Bible shuts down on those words in the last page of the last chapter of the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament is the last page of the Bible till there was no remedy. Then the next page is God sends a remedy after all. But Israel, instead of entering into their possessions, they're waiting, they're marking time, they're in their blindness still. But we shall see that that's even been overruled for another fullness to come in. But there's one other passage that I want to take together with this. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 1 Thessalonians 2.16 The Apostle is writing concerning the treatment that they are now receiving in Thessalonica and elsewhere. But he says, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Notice the many ands there are. It's got a, a, a long name in figures of speech. It means many ands. Many ands. Don't forget them. Don't slip them over. It builds it up. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now that's the climax. <sighs> to fill up their sins all way. For wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. They filled up their measure. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. And they crucified Christ. But they hadn't reached the full measure, had they? For he said, Father forgive them. And Pentecost came. And Israel had the second opportunity. And now he says, You've reached a climax. And what was the climax? Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. That was the last straw. Now those words are the last words, or the, that word forbidding is the last word of the Acts of the Apostles. No man forbidding him. And that's what the Apostle meant. Israel couldn't forbid the Apostle Paul to speak to the Gentiles. For they're gone. They were out of it. They had no more voice in the matter. Their eyes were shut. Their ears were closed, their hearts were hardened, and the salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles. It's the very word used by Peter. How could any man forbid water? What was I that I could forbid or withstand God? So he would have done it, left to himself. This great prejudice. 
hugging to themselves a blessing, when God said to Abraham, that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You know, even those who believe the truth of the mystery can so hug it to themselves that they get like someone once said to me years ago. He says, I suppose sometimes you've sung that hymn, a little garden walled around sacred and peculiar ground, but don't put broken glass on the top. You see, we, we, we believe it's a secret thing, we believe it's an elective thing, but God has put into our mouths the words of the Apostle to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery if only they will let us. Not that we can open the door or we can push them in or we can keep them out. So these people failed because they failed of the purpose for which they were saved. So there we have length of rope, as it were. The iniquity of the Avarites the measure of your fathers, fueled up their complete measure and wrath came upon them. Well now, another feature that I want to canvas and do that perhaps quickly now is, I've said earlier, that there is some thought about, in this calling of Israel, a promise that they were going to be beyond number. Well, of course, they're about the smallest of the nations now. They never have been the extraordinary great. Their land is a very small portion of this earth's surface. But you might say, word, you've got to take that with a grain of salt. Well, the grain of salt means grace, friends, not, not that you don't believe it. And that's the answer. Now, I'll ask you to turn rapidly with me to a few passages where I think you'll see that God means what he says with regard to number. Just literal number. Revelation chapter 8 Revelation chapter 8, verse 7 to 12. Now these are foreshadowings of what's coming upon the earth presently. Chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Well, do you need to be told that when it says all flesh is grass, that's a figure of speech, but it's literally true? You and I would not be living today if there were no green grass on the earth. Well, you say, we don't eat grass? No. But I suppose you'd drink milk, eat butter and cheese and beef and mutton and poultry and eggs. And Well, you're going to stop. All of that is produced by animals that live well and healthily on nothing but green grass. The more green grass they have and the less cotton cake they have, the better. So when you get this statement, don't forget, this means absolute disaster. Green grass gone. That'll make a man say, what a slender thread my life is hanging upon. My breath is in my nostrils and the green grass is that which is a complete support for me. And so we have that passage. Now we'll go on again. And the second angel sounded, and it, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. Now we need not take that perhaps literally, I don't know, but there's something else that's desperately influencing human life. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. Think of it. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. 
And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And so he goes on speaking about the third part. But if you go on with this dreadful story, you'll discover that that was an introduction to a yet even more devastating destruction of this world. And then would you remember when the beast comes out at the call of Satan, he has some ability, some power that paralyzes the world. They say, who is able to make war with him? What must he have then that all the other nations have to stop and say we are done? Now there's another passage in Zechariah, but I, I want to turn to that. It's terrible, but it will give us a little indication of blessing that's coming out of it. Zechariah chapter 14. Now this goes right back, this goes on to the days that are yet in front of us. Chapter 14, Behold the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. And all nations are going to be gathered against Jerusalem to battle. That's one of the things that must come. Well then, coming to verse 12, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Now, I'm not reading this because I'm, I'm glad to read it. I'm only saying, what can this mean that's put in the scriptures? Because some have said this is almost an equivalent description to the dreadful results when the bomb dropped upon Harishama. It could almost have been anticipating what the destruction would involve. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Now you say, why are you reading all this? Well, look down at verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left, do you hear that? Everyone that is left, well that means to say, there will be very few left. You see, the economists and been making us sort of wonder what's going to happen in 20 or 40 years time because there's a sort of pro there's a sort of an expansion of births there's going to be so many more million born next year and so it goes on there won't be enough food for all the world there won't be enough for people to stand oh you see this is what's coming there's going to be such a decimation and the people that are going to fuel this earth, instead of being a little remnant in it, is this people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They are going to blossom and bud and fill the earth. And the Gentiles are going to be then the outsiders. And we'll read it a bit further. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, should even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Why keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Because that is the symbol that at last peace has come. They shall dwell every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Now, I don't read that in the newspapers, but that's in this, this newspaper that God has given us that he's got a plan, and he had it from the beginning. And when that evil seed is gone, and any amount of it's in the earth today, then the earth is going to be inhabited by these people that for the time being are in their blindness, 
and the Feast of Tabernacles will be the symbol. Well now I think it's time, because our time is not unlimited, to turn our attention to this um, chapter that we had before us in the Epistle to the Romans. So there we have a principle worked out that I think may help us after we've read some of these horrible things uh, in the Revelation and in the book of Zechariah. You will notice the structure that I've given you on this chart goes right back to Romans the ninth chapter, verse 30. You can see I've scribbled in the one to save my face because I've forgotten to put it in. But it is there. That's Romans the ninth chapter, verse 30. So will you look at it? What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, but Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Well, the Gentiles are coming in because Israel have failed. Yes, God says. I can overrule failure to blessing. That's what we're going to learn now. So it'll be a pleasant end up instead of the horrible thoughts we had just now. And so you see, we've got that word scandal on, which gives us our word scandal. That is a stumbling block. Verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And then you get the word ashamed. And then you get the word ashamed, and you get the word scandal. So I think we'll look at those. Chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So he's picking up the thought. And then in chapter 11, 9 and 10, we have the scandal again. And David says, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a scandal, a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Oh, you say we're getting back to this terrible bit again. Here this people are to be set aside, their eyes darkened that they shouldn't see, and their back bowed down. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Yes, that's true. And that's their fault because of their attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. They stumbled because of him. They would not believe he became a rock of offence instead of a rock foundation. But are they given up? No, you know for well they're not. What is God going to do if Israel fail? What if they have to be set aside temporarily? Will he do nothing? No, he's opened the door to you and me. That's what God can do. So let's rejoice and see that that is embedded in this book and in this chapter. Verse 11 he says, I say then, you could make that a question, friend. Not I say then, he says, now do I say then, see, am I saying that they have stumbled with the object that they should fall? God forbid, he said, no, they have stumbled. But because God can overrule, he can bring salvation through their fall to the Gentiles. And why is he going to bring the Gentiles into it? Why, to provoke them to jealousy and save them. Now, you wouldn't quite think that perhaps provoking to jealousy and provoking to emulation could be used of a tree. But he brings that picture in, the olive tree. And he says, look, if I put it in holy language, Israel is the olive. And you Gentiles are grafted in to the olive tree, but you're wild olives and you're grafted contrary to nature. Now, I've met people very supercilious people who say, you see, the Apostle Paul, even he didn't know what he was talking about because they've got a garden and they've got a book that tells them how to do grafting. 
And they say, who ever heard of putting a wild graft into the stock? If you've got roses in your garden, they will have a briar stock with all the thorns on them and the choice rose on the top. If you've got an apple tree, so a copses orange pippin, you'll have the copses orange graft in to the more rough uh, wild apple. That's normal. But you say you've got it the wrong way round. You put a wild olive contrary to nature into the olive tree. And yet that's absolutely true, friends. I don't use the word, the title, FRHS, in case some people want to give me an extra job. But I did sit for examinations and got passed. And when I was at the college in uh, Chelmsford, Agricultural College, a question came up in the class. They said that a certain nursery, very near to them, had had a rather peculiar experience. They had a row of pear trees that they were cultivating. Year by year they came in full blossom and never produced fruit. Then on one occasion, one of the work people, either by accident or design, I don't know which, grafted into one of those pears a wild pear. And that tree bore fruit, not the wild bit. The tree bore fruit. And they didn't know. So, oh, I trailed my dress in that meeting. I stood up and I said, if you only knew your Bible, oh, talk about the Bible in an agricultural college. I said, if you only knew your Bible in Romans 11 and how they cultivated olives in the days of the Apostle Paul, they'd only discover what they did then. Because there, there is a book written by Colin Neller it's out of print, but it can be found by those who know where to find them in the libraries, on olive culture. And he says, when an olive grows very old, and when we were in Mallorca last year, we saw olive trees that were 1,000 years old. And they looked like nightmares. The way in which they were distorted and grown, they're still bearing fruit. But he says, at last, there comes a moment when they cease to bear fruit. When if you will put into that olive, a wild olive... It will provoke to jealousy, provoke to emulation the olive tree and it will start bearing all over again. He said, Gentiles, it's not your turn yet. God is only blessing the Gentile during the Acts of the Apostles and giving them all the gifts of 1 Corinthians to provoke Israel. They say, he says, they say so, with stammering lips and other tongues would I provoke you to jealousy. And instead of being provoked to jealousy, I just went out in their darkness. God was doing that. That's why he saved the Gentile in the Acts of the Apostles. To wake up, if possible, the flagging olive tree. And then he didn't give them up, so we'll go on again. But you see what God did? He's now giving us an argument. He said, um, verse 12, Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If you and I are entering now into blessing, that speaking humanly, we should never have heard if Israel had been saved and the kingdom had been set up, because that's a big if. He says, if God can bring about blessing like that, what will it be when the fullness comes in, instead of being in blindness? I, I speak to you Gentiles, in as much as I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, it would have been a very bad thing to hear the Apostle speaking about himself. I magnify myself. Oh no, he said, I'm less than the least of all saints. But he didn't underestimate the office he had. I magnify it. He said, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
If by any means I may provoke to emulation, that's Israel, those that are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, and the receiving of them be life from the dead, for if the first fruit be holy, the lamp also is holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And so he goes on now to the olive tree, and then he comes back again to this question of the fullness. How much more their fullness? Verse 12. Now we'll go on to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. You see, if you don't know that you are only benefiting by Israel's failure, you might plume yourself to think you were somebody. No, no, he said, don't be wise in your own conceits. For blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, all Israel shall be saved. So you see, there are two fullnesses here. The one, the fullness of Israel, which was temporarily set aside and broken. The fullness of the Gentile, which includes you and me, and a dispensation not yet made known that God knew. And so he says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Now, it distresses me to think, I'm not mentioning names, but there are one or two in this very city of London, fine, godly men, who believe the word of God, and preach the gospel of grace, who have no place for Israel in the future. They say the only hope for Israel in the future is to become a member of the church, and that's the end of it. Well, however, can you look at these words and say that? For this is my covenant with, unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. So, so far as the gospel is concerned, they're out of it. So you can't say they're members of a church. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without a change of mind. So here we have then uh, just a study that we've conducted this evening as best we may, showing you that we have this word fullness in more senses than one. I suppose I ought to go on now and refer, as I must in part in, in concluding, there is another phase of Gentile blessing, when Israel were completely set aside at Acts 28 and went out into their blindness, then, the apostle said, the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. Now that's the ministry that we rejoice in today. The calling out of the church, which is the body of Christ, and its title is, The Fullness of Him That Filleth All in All. And he is going to, in the fullness of seasons, gather together in one, all things, whether they're Jew or Gentile, heaven and earth, in him. And in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that's been taken as a proof text concerning the deity of Christ. But I think it's a mistake. Not that I believe the deity of Christ is a mistake, but we don't want to take texts to bolster up a truth. 
Because if the church is the fullness of him that fitteth all in all, you're encroaching very much on deity there, if that's the case. But no, no. He emptied himself, Philippians 2, emptied himself. Our version says, made no, of no reputation. And stooped as low as it's possible to stoop in this life. Wherefore God highly exalted him. And because he was utterly emptied like that, he could be utterly filled like that. And there's a fullness in Christ for the church which is the body, the church of the present dispensation. There's the fullness in Christ for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. There's a fullness in Christ for Israel's fullness. And where Abraham, where Abraham failed, and where Isaac failed, and where Jacob failed, and where Noah failed, and where Adam failed, when God said, be, be fruitful and multiply and replenish, fill this one will in a sense that they could never do. Well, that's as far as I think we'll go this evening. And I'll leave it with you, so that you may dwell upon it, rejoice in it, and be glad to think that God can overrule all this opposition, and bring that argument before us. If God could do that, what will be their fullness? Now, the whole section in Romans 9, 10 and 11, begins with sorrow. Sorrow. I have great sorrow in my heart for Israel. It ends in song. You remember? It ends in the doxology, all the debts. And I was noticing Nebuchadnezzar's start. It starts with a dulcimer. And it ends with dust. That's a play with words, perhaps, but then I'll put those down just to jog the memory. Here is sorrow, but it ends in song. He starts with a band, you know, the orchestra with all the dulcimers and the call, it's all going and a stone without hands, and it becomes like dust on a threshing floor. It's good to be on the side of God, isn't it? And even if we have to wait sometimes with a certain amount of discipline, let's take to our hearts from this passage that we had in front of us, weeping may endure for a night. I say may, but joy cometh in the morning.